ladies and gentlemen, to another, the second episode of The Overlap this week. Obviously, we talked about England and the up-and-coming Spurs and Chelsea this week earlier on. Now, we have to shift focus towards La Liga and in Spain, of course, the decline of the mighty Barcelona. Um, I don't even think I can call them mighty at this point anymore. Um, Real Madrid also not looking as sharp as they could have against Villarreal uh, over the weekend and Real Sociedad still topping the La Liga table. So a lot of different narratives coming out of Spain uh, this past weekend. Um, but just before Rian and I were about to start recording, I, I do have to point this out because we are recording this on Wednesday. We just got news that Diego Maradona has passed away. Um, it, I mean, literally 30 seconds before we started recording, um, and from what we know so far slash what we've known in the last couple of weeks is that in Argentina, I think he went in to get surgery on a blood clot or a blood uh, hemorrhage in his brain. Uh, and for all accounts, it, it seems to have been a successful one. Uh, I guess, uh, unfortunately, that is not necessarily the case now. Um, but we, we're really just processing this as we're recording it. I mean, I, I'm kind of in shock, honestly. I, I didn't expect to hear this news um in what has been an absolutely terrible year for most people um unless of course you're a billionaire in the united states then you probably gain a net worth of several billion more but other than that um i i don't have much more to say right now just because we don't know too much about what has happened with maradona um and his passing but he, he was in his 60s he was relatively young um I can't probably say that he was relatively healthy, but he was, this was certainly unexpected. And to one of the greatest ever footballers to do it, um, bar very, very few, Diego Maradona. Thank you. That's it. So Rian, obviously on a somber note, because we just found this out, but we're still going to talk La Liga. And honestly, with Thanksgiving coming up tomorrow for us, as we're recording this now, there's still a lot to be grateful for. I, I'm I'm grateful to to have my friends, to have my family, to have the podcast, obviously, and Rian's around occasionally, so that's nice. Um, but yeah, it, it, I still have a lot to be grateful for, um, and I want to thank you all for for listening as always. So, Rian, any other thoughts before we get started on La Liga? Now, uh, like you said, RIP to the legend, and for those of you out there who have not gotten a chance to watch it i will always recommend the diego maradona documentary done by uh, hbo last year something like two hours of just a bunch of footage that no one ever seen of him and um it's a, it's a great documentary and, and it's a great homage to not just the player but the crazy life that that he lived and i i think it's the best way to kind of understand Diego Maradona, the player, and Diego Maradona, the man himself. So, again, RIP, but lost a great one. I mean, luckily, Elise and I were talking about this before. Luckily, still have Pele for now, but he's much, much older, and we're hoping, hopefully, he makes it a, a few more years. Um, but, yeah, very sad news. Yeah, and, and like Rian said, um, Pele is older. He's, he's about 80. Um, but still just very sad news coming out of Argentina. And so uh, even as we record, um, I'll, uh, I'll keep an eye on some of the news. If anything comes up while we're recording, well, I'll be sure to let you know, but in 
the most, you know, Maradona type narrative thematic way. Let's shift focus towards a team that he did used to play for back in the eighties. And of course in Barcelona, um, Rian and I both got a chance to watch the Barcelona athletic game this past weekend. Um, I suffered through it. Rian as a neutral, of course, just watched it. Um, Rian, I, I have some thoughts and I have some conclusions about both sides, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on just what you saw, the good, the bad, and the ugly from this game. Cause it was, I think a relatively entertaining game as, as the game went on. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The first half was, was pretty good. I, I KG in a lot of instances of this game, but that's kind of what you expect from an Atletico Barca game, especially one that includes Diego Simeone. But I just starting with Atleti because I'm sure we'll have a lot to, to say about Barcelona. But Atleti, we said last week, or I said last week, that we would learn a lot about them if they're able to win this game without Luis Suarez. And I felt like we did learn a lot about them. Uh, I know Elias has a theory on, on the different ways that Atleti plays. And, and I think we have been seeing a real variation in this week. You know, I was reading um, Michael Cox wrote a little piece about Carrasco's positioning during this game. And it was really a, a kind of diversion from the four, four, two that Atleti usually plays. And Carrasco basically played as, the left wing back and found himself in a lot of, a lot of space in that first half. And we saw the the goal that he scored was starts from him being deep in his own uh, defensive third, basically trying to block out a cross from I think Usman Dembele and immediately sprinting forward into space. And uh, I think it's Correa that ends up playing him through and, he it's Ter Stegen who comes out and gets magged and and uh Cross was able to to score into a completely open net. But yeah, I, th- I thought it was just some really interesting stuff from Atleti uh, and showed that there's some real versatility to the way that they play. Yeah, and on the topic of Atleti, I'm glad you started with that. Um l- let's start off talking about the goal. Um the, the goal, of course, like you said, scored by just a massive mistake from Toshiga. I, I mean, I've watched the, the clip about 15 times now, and I still don't understand what Toshiga was doing. I just, I would love to sit down with him and just ask him what his thought process was because it just wasn't clear to me. Um, he had defenders tracking back, and granted, I think PK in that situation for losing the ball as high up the pitch as he was is equally as fault here. But I don't understand what Ter Stegen was doing that far outside of his net. I understand he's a sweeper keeper, but he's not a midfielder. There's there's a massive difference. So that was the first mistake. And I, the reason why I was so scared about an athletic goal like that, just a one-off, especially in the first half when it was a little cagier, is that Atleti still have only conceded two goals in seven games in La Liga, right? So giving Atleti a silly, silly chance to score like that is basically locking up three points for them. It, it, it just is. That's that's the way that they have played. That's the way that they have defensively played. It's so, so solidified. So that, that was honestly a very, very worrying sign for me at the end of the first half. But I want to just shift focus to the beginning and kind of the first 20 minutes of the first half, too, when there were signs of life from Barcelona. I mean, you had 
a messy chance that he was threw in on goal off the left wing and it went essentially straight to Oblak's arm, a great save from Oblak. You had a Dembele shot, which of course is, is saved, a Griezmann shot that was also parried over the bar. And so there were chances there for Barcelona in the first half, but they were a side that I think this is a common theme throughout this game that ultimately looked toothless. Like they, they looked like a side that were good at carrying the ball around in the midfield area of the park and couldn't in any way get past even the first line defense from Atleti. It just looked completely toothless regardless who was on the pitch. And I'm going to probably say this again and again over the next several weeks, but this is a game that I think screamed for Ricky Pooch to come on um, and kind of dominate this Atleti side with a sense of athleticism and dynamism um, and risk-taking because that was the only way that Barcelona were going to get back into this game in the second half. So if you shift focus towards the second half and, and, and what Atleti did, I don't think that there was ever a point in the second half outside of maybe the last five minutes where I thought Atleti lost control of this game. You would think that a game or a team that was one nil up um, and, you know, at any time, especially at side against or a team playing up against Barcelona could potentially give up goals, uh, you know, on a one-off, but Atleti, they almost doubled down. They didn't, they didn't, you know, give the ball away many times. They, they controlled, you know, their defensive structure by controlling the ball, not by controlling the other team's man marking or positional play. And that is a completely different Atleti than what we're used to from prior seasons. And that sort of play by Simeone is especially without Suarez in this team is really, really interesting to watch. And I think that's, you know, what Rihanna and I are alluding to in that this is telling us a lot more about Atleti than did about Barcelona. So very impressed with how Atleti even came out in the second half, even more so than the first half. Cause again, the goal was a one-off, but it was still, um, you know, a goal for Atleti. So I was very impressed with, with them in the second half more so. Yeah. I want to just get back to like that toothless feeling that, I think we got watching Barcelona. Messi and Griezmann combined for two touches in the box in this entire game. And I don't think that you would expect either of them to be a sort of target man or or that kind of wall for the attackers to play the ball off of and combine for for one-twos in the box like that. But it speaks to a greater issue that Barcelona has right now of no real presence in the box. And, and there is no focal point to their attack. And it's really tough. I think on both players, especially Griezmann, because he's never played with a, let's say attacking partner like Lionel Messi. He's always been at his most successful for France with Giroud and at Atletico Madrid with uh, Diego Costa and uh, Fernando Llorente and, and real target men strikers. And it's, it's really tough, I think on him because that's where he's at his best. And he is a world-class player, a world-class talent, but he's not being, able to accentuate his best abilities in this team right now. And 
just looking at his first two years right now, we're not at the end of the of his two years up or two years at Barca yet, but his first season and and a bit at Barca compared to his last two seasons at Atletico. His shot creating actions per ninety went from averaging three and a half at Atletico to just under two shot creating actions per game here at, at uh, Barcelona. Since then, what's also changed is the amount of touches in the defensive penalty area per 90. That has shot up in his two years at Barcelona so far. Whereas at, at Letty, he was somewhere around half a touch a game. There, he's averaging one and a half to two touches now at, at Barcelona. So it, it's really tough to see how Griezmann his form especially has been bad recently, but it's hard to see how his impact on the team changes when it's just not a team that is set up for him to succeed in the areas that we've seen him succeed in just about every other level of his career. Yeah, you make a good point in um, pushing the narrative that I have very underratedly pushed for the last year, uh, which is Griezmann as backup left back for Jordi Alba or starting left back for Jordi Alba. Um, Cause he has the work rate. He has, you know, the, the attacking prowess to get forward. Um, I don't, I'm just going to throw it out there. I don't hate that idea, but to your point, yes, I, I still think there's no, <laughs> I, hate it. I hate it. I hate it completely. <laughs> I, mean, I thought you were joking for a second there. Oh no, I'm fully not joking. Oh my I, God. I, I think he could absolutely slot in as a starting left back. Um, that, that is again, assuming yeah, that he's bigger, not a work. Yeah, yeah. Huge problems, huge problems at the club that that part's happening. Oh yeah. I, I mean, huge problems regardless, quite honestly, but yes, fair, fair point. This is of course, assuming that he is not a top world-class striker, um, outside of his left back positioning. But anyway, that aside, I agree. I still don't think there's a, 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 a very obvious spot that Griezmann fits into this team. And you said it best yourself in that there's no focal point in attack anymore, right? Luis Suarez used to be that focal point. Granted, I- I'm still in favor of him having le- left the team, maybe not in the manner that he did, but I think the team requires a different focal point um, because he can't do all the things that a number nine for Barcelona are really required to do. And I thought Griezmann would be that that type of player to come in and slot into that Suarez-esque position. But what I've realized is that Griezmann plays off of other focal points, like you mentioned. Griezmann relies on focal points like Giroud in, uh, you know, for the French national team or like other players around him, whether it was Suarez before or someone else. And he didn't have that, right? He didn't, ha- he hasn't had that for the last year and a half. And he's also played under three different coaches that have coached completely different styles. So what's been asked of him has not at all been clear over the last year and a half. And I feel for him because I think he expects more of himself, but he also expects, or, you know, but also the fans expect more of him. So I, I think it's almost somewhat of a lose-lose situation, unfortunately, but I do think that he has the quality to overcome that as time goes on. And I think last night when Barcelona played Kiev in the Champions League, you saw that with him and Brathwaite on the pitch, granted, I, Brathwaite is not our future number nine by any means, but playing with a number nine in front of him at least allowed him to get into the right positions. And look what happened. He scores a fourth goal. So I think there, that's an important factor to, 
to kind of understand that he requires focal points, but this Barcelona side has many, many other problems outside of Griezmann, quite frankly, many other other problems. That's, that's true. But I, but I think Griezmann is more of a, a microcosm of the transfer policy at, at Barcelona the last three to four years, really getting a player that by all means does not fit with your playing style at all but he is a world-class talent and has been very successful. But you bring him in and he's now at the point where this season he's at a career low in pass targets per 90 and a career low in goal creating actions per game. It's he's being made to play a completely different type of style, not just style. I shouldn't say he's being played in a completely different role than he has ever played in his entire career and a role that he has not still gotten used to. And it's not his fault because he's 29 at this point. This is not the time to start playing him in a completely different role than he's been comfortable in the last 10 years, basically of his career. Right. Um, So it's it's a difficult it's a difficult one, and I really hesitate to say it, but he would be so much better off with Messi not in the team, and that's an impossible an impossible situation to remedy for for Barcelona just as a whole, and it's an impossible situation that that Griezmann himself has been put in because at the end of the day we're most likely going to look back on his Barcelona career and, and somehow ding him for it on ding his kind of take away from his overall ability as a player, because it didn't work out at Barcelona and it was just not his fault at all. Not Messi's fault either, but it's just not Antoine Griezmann's fault that he is not performing to the level that many expected him to with this move. Completely agreed. Uh, I'm very curious as to what will happen with the Messi situation for obvious reasons um, come January and come the summer. But I think that Griezmann will probably feel very strongly one way or another deep down um, about whether Messi leaves or whether he stays. Um, So that in and of itself is something to watch for. Um, But again, going back to the Atleti game, um, something, you know, that was still very impressive about Atleti. and, And I said this around before we started recording the last thing I'll say on this game is that Atleti basically, in my opinion, have three different styles of play. Now that's what I concluded from this game, right? We concluded that there was a lot more to take away from their performance, but what did I take away? I, I took away three different things. So I, I think Atleti have three styles of play one with Luis Suarez. They have one style of play that they played with in the first half and a style of play that they played with in the second half of this game with Luis Suarez. I'll start there. Atleti look like much more of a, I would say, fluid attacking side that relies on João Felix as the focal point. Uh, João Felix in the Atleti Barcelona game this past weekend, he didn't shine in the way that I thought he would. And, and Rihanna, I thought he would. I really thought this could have been a serious breakout game for him. But th- that was not what happened in this game. And what we saw is that Atleti relied much more on those forward runs from their deep lying midfielders in Coca and Carrasco, like you saw in the goal and like you saw throughout the second half. So 
the Luis Suarez, the, the team, the athletic team with Luis Suarez in it relies on Jao Felix as a focal point and doesn't rely so much at, on their deep line midfielders on making progressive runs forward. That's one style of Atleti. The first half saw Atleti do the most Atleti things. They sat in a deep block. They defended well, waited for the counters, waited for the balls to get lost, and sprung forward as fast as possible. That is almost the Atleti of old, the Atleti that we are kind of used to in a, in a very rigid system, and one that didn't play into Jao Felice's strengths by any means. Granted, he, he did make forward runs, but lost the ball a lot and was really kind of alone in his, in his attacking moves forward, partially because Luis Suarez was not there. That's the second type of Atleti we saw, the defensive block, I'll call it. The third Atleti, and this is my favorite Atleti side, the one we saw in the second half. The Atleti that relied solely on progressive balls forward, passing lanes opening up, making space going forward, and the circulation of the ball to actually play in a defensive manner. They didn't seem like they were a team that was going to let this game get away from them in any way. They looked like a team that could dominate and control the second half by holding the ball. And that's not something that we see a lot in an athletic side. And that, I think, is largely down to Koke's increase in form coming off of the Spain game where he looked amazing. And, of course, Carrasco and Sal Niguez. That's it. There you go. You know, really playing like just a box to box midfielder. And that sort of athleticism is what Atleti needed in that game. And that's what allowed them to control with the ball. And that's not something that we see a lot. So the three different Atletis, that's, that's what I would point out. And that's what I'm very, very curious to see if they can continue going forward because they do have a game in hand on Real Sociedad who are top of the table. So they could very well take the first, the the top spot come, uh, come the next couple of weeks. So I'll leave it at that, Rian, and uh, maybe we take a quick break before we jump on and I go shitting all over Real Madrid for their meh performance at Villarreal. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to be jumping right into it, talking a little uh, Real Madrid versus Villarreal this past weekend. Uh, a game that I watched on the side instead of a couple of Premier League games, I have to admit. Um, but still a game nonetheless that was very, very entertaining. Real Madrid coming out very early. Mariano Diaz, uh, really in place of Benzema, coming out and scoring within the first basically two minutes Um of his first start in a while for Real Madrid, putting them 1-0 uh, up against Villarreal early. And for some reason, Mariano Diaz has a very interesting track record of scoring very soon as he comes onto the field. Uh, he did it in the Clasico, and now he's, he's done it again in um, La Liga against Villarreal. Um, so a very interesting trend. Just, I don't know, that's a narrative, but we'll, we'll put that aside. Um, but Villarreal really not letting up, especially in the second half under Unai Emery, of course. And coming through with a 1-1 tie in the end, um, thanks to a Gerard Moreno penalty. Gerard Moreno, for me, played very, very well um, in parts of this game and a deserved penalty and a deserved goal uh, for Villarreal, quite frankly, by the end of this game. So, Rian, what did you take away from Real Madrid, Villarreal, and what are your thoughts on either of these teams? Yeah, I also watched this game over for a Premier League game that was going on at the same time. I don't even remember who, who was playing um, in England. But, yeah, I chose to watch this game. And, yeah, Real Madrid started 
very well, obviously scoring very early, but overall they really did not harm Villarreal very much at all. They had outside of the first goal, which came literally in the first minute, <laughs> they had one shot in the box for the rest of the game. They had, they had five shots in overall, but one, only one of them were inside the box. And I think that speaks to their real inability to be incisive in this game. And this is a game that they had a Hazard playing. And even from him, there was a real lack of men, players trying to actually beat Villarreal defenders on the dribble, which was really surprising to see from Eden Hazard. And we can always chalk this up to he's just coming back from um, a COVID positive test. And now I don't remember if he was symptomatic or not, but we'll give him a pass for this game as he's getting back to fitness and he hasn't seemed fully fit at all this year. So we really have to see what he looks like after a good run of games, but from Real Madrid as a whole, yeah, just not incisive enough. And as the game wore on, Villarreal started dominating possession more and more. And I think by the time that they end up getting the penalty, it it, it feels like a very deserved goal for um, for Villarreal. I remember I texted Elias during this game that for basically until um, Samuel Chukweze came on for Villarreal, this game had zero pace to it it was so slow it was even from Villarreal's side it was a lot of very safe possession I felt by both sides and then Chukweze came on and injection of pace into this game and the first or one of the first I mean maybe the second or third run he makes darting into the box and once again Real Madrid they are so soft to the center of to the spine of their team. That is where we see a lot of goals conceded from them, especially in the champions league. I think we saw that a lot in, in Shakhtar Donetsk game, but they're very soft with the middle. And the, one of the first few runs that Chukweze makes gets in behind and ends up getting fouled. Um, I can't remember who, if it was Varane or, or, or maybe it was, um, maybe it was one of the fullbacks, but either way, the, Pace is injected into one part of this game from the Villarreal side, and that's where their goal ends up coming from. And and I think it was fully deserved. The, the point fully deserved by Villarreal by the end. And just, again, uh, another Spanish manager on a redemption arc. So Unai Emery, applaud, applaud, applaud the man, because um, he's doing a really great job with Villarreal. I never thought I'd hear you say the words. Good job to Unai Emery after his, uh, of course, his weekend or not his weekend, his performances um, for Villarreal or for I'm losing for Arsenal and PSG. That's what I meant for his quote unquote big club performances. Um, of course, I know your stance is that Unai Emery can only manage mid-sized clubs that have a high upside. Uh, and I think Villarreal is probably the most perfect definition of that. Yeah, <laughs> other than yeah, not not, Valencia, not, to be, not to insult the man, but it's just like <laughs> this, like he just these guys don't have most of the Villarreal players. There aren't huge egos on that team, and right. he's able to just be a coach, and he's a very good coach. And 
that's what we're seeing. He's coaching Villarreal extremely well. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that as well. Um, I think I think his performance outside of the the first Barcelona game in which they kind of got smacked has been fantastic. Not like nothing short of just amazing. And in this game, I think you saw the the kind of the commitment the players have to Unai Emery, not in the sense of like like Marcel Bielsa level commitment, but like a a commitment to the playing style. It, it seems to make sense in terms of fluidity, in terms of what he's getting from his players. And I, I do want to highlight Gerard Moreno again. I know he's been very consistent over the last two years in La Liga, but a player that has really, really started to shine for for Villarreal this season. And you saw him getting involved in various different phases of the buildup for Villarreal, especially in the second half. Did he miss chances that he should not have missed? Absolutely. Um, but other than that, I mean, he took the ball well in a lot of different fa- parts of the pitch, especially between kind of the, the final third and the 18 yard box and, and played a lot of really good passes out to the, the wide men. I thought he was very, very involved, especially after Chukweze came on. Uh, a player that objectively should have started. I, I really don't know why he did not start um, on yeah, the left I wing. I mean, yeah, he was at some point between Varane, Nacho, and Carvajal at some various points throughout the second half was just torching them. Like he is, he plays such insightful balls too into the box. I mean, on the penalty, for example, you saw him play in um, a, a very, very good ball, a very good pass in, in towards. Um, I think it was Gerard Moreno who actually got tripped up for the penalty. Um, and it was just a ball that I, I don't think any of the Real Madrid players were prepared for. So very, very impressed by Chukweze again. And in my opinion, Villarreal were the better of the two sides over the entire 90 minutes. I think they controlled the game in the second half. I think the first half they had a couple of chances here and there. But again, Real Madrid didn't look like they were threatening. And I think, honestly... I think a part of that is because Zidane kind of messed up his lineup. I, I, I don't hate the 4-2-3-1 that he started in this game. So he started Mariona Diaz up top and Hazard on the left and, um, oh gosh, Lucas Vasquez on the right. And he started Modric and Tony Kroos as defensive midfielders. And I don't know if that's Modric's preferred position. I, I would probably argue. And by the way, he started Odegaard in the, in the 10 spot. So, I don't know if that's Modric's best position, sitting as a deep-lying midfielder. I think he's probably best suited as a more advanced midfielder, and he started playing that way towards the end of the first half. But I don't think that he got the lineup correct. I don't hate the formation, but this game screamed for Isco. I mean, I don't know why Isco does not start in this. Like, Zidane has to have some agenda against Isco. Okay, well, 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 yeah, let's touch on that. We saw in the last couple of days... Isco's, I think, dad and his agent have both come out and said that he is looking to move elsewhere in January. And you know, Elias sent me, I think he sent me a text before this game saying that Isco wasn't in this. Was he in the squad at all for the, that this past weekend? He, he was on the bench, I believe. On the bench, but yeah, yeah, basically on the outside looking in. But yeah, another game where he doesn't start. And I said to Ellis, I think he's, I think his time is finished there. And, and that was before we, the, the reports came out from his um, agent and his dad. So that looks like days numbered for, uh, for Isco at, at Real Madrid. And we, and we have no clue what, if something happened between him and Zidane and, or maybe it's just, 
could be something as simple as he's not showing it in training. So it's, it's a huge fall off from the player that he looked like three years ago to his career really not progressing since then. That's a good point too, right? You, you bring up three years ago, three years ago in Real Madrid's March to the Champions League, I think their final Champions League in their three in a row, he was integral, inter- integral, not integral, integral in their, their Champions League run. He was key in playing in the 10th in spot under Zidane. So I don't understand what's changed in the last couple of years, but it, it has to be something personal. It can't be something on the field because I feel like every time Isco is on the field and he plays in his favorite position, he's just top class. I, I said this a couple of years back when Andres Iniesta left Barcelona, but in a world where Isco is not playing for Real Madrid, I thought he would be the perfect replacement for Iniesta at Barcelona, but that's obviously not going to happen. So I, I don't know what's wrong with Isco. I don't know what's wrong with him and Zidane's relationship, but I think Isco does need to look for a way out of the team because he's clearly not getting the starting and the playing time that he deserves. But to, to your point about, you know, the game and, and Real Madrid and, and Villarreal, Real Madrid just don't, they also kind of look a little toothless, maybe not to the level of Barcelona, but they just don't look like threatened. They're a threatening side right now. And I think a big part of that also, we should not underrate is that Benzema was not in this game. He's still injured and is not playing and, and no Ramos. Exactly. And no Sergio Ramos. So two players that are obviously key to the side, but again, I, I'm going to make this point. I made it a couple weeks ago. Do you remember when I said, if this team loses basically two major players in, in Kareem Benzema and Sergio Ramos, they look like an entirely different side. Well, you kind of saw that this weekend. They didn't look like a side that looked threatening, that a side that could go on an 11-game-in-a-row tear towards the end of the La Liga like they did last season, you know, after football restarted after the pandemic. It's just, it's a completely different side, and I think Real Madrid are teetering on that level of we need to find new players to step up into their mold, and I don't know if they have. Obviously, they'll be targeting uh, Holland and Mbappe next summer, bar any financial restrictions, so we'll see how that goes, but... Again, I think they need to replace those those players sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I I think we're not feels like we're not learning a lot about um, Real Madrid that we didn't know before. There's just there needs to be a turnover. There need it's a very slow turnover of of the squad right now, and you know, they didn't spend like you said they didn't spend this summer, and I think we'll see we'll see next summer it just doesn't feel like this team will they might have enough to win the league because it doesn't feel like an extremely strong year for anyone outside of atletico madrid but it's somewhat the same as last year where they kind of won it almost by default but um yeah it's it's just not it's not clicking for real madrid of course but it's also just not it's the pieces are not fitting well either. And I think a big part of it is the fact that their, their core is aging. So we'll have to see what, what happens in, you know, the coming months, especially in the summer of 2021, as they make, I think what will be probably bigger changes, given that they didn't really make many this past summer. So I think next summer we'll hold a lot of keys to what the future of Real Madrid looks like. But again, a average performance for them at best. Um, but moving on, Rian, to kind of the last major point in the Liga from the weekend, just to touch on it, Real Sociedad, my uh, my favorite team outside of Barcelona right now, 
in La Liga coming up on the top spot. Now, like I said, during the Atleti part of the podcast, Atleti still have two games in hand against Real Sociedad. They played eight while Sociedad have played 10. So it's very likely that Atleti will overtake Real Sociedad at some point in the, the coming weeks and months. But for now, Real Sociedad have enjoyed top spot for a couple of weeks now. Like it has, it's been relatively consistent and they've been putting basically teams to the sword every time they play them. Um, and it's genuinely impressive. My favorite player in La Liga, of course, Alexander Isak, uh, like I mentioned a couple of times for Real Sociedad, their substitute striker coming off the bench. Uh, or actually, I believe he started against Cadiz over the weekend, scoring to make it 1-0 and beating out Cadiz um, over the weekend. Rian, I- I'm continually impressed by Real Sociedad. I'm continually impressed with their consistency and their the rapid progression of the ball forward. I think they're, so, well, they're one of the, the fastest teams at progressing the ball. And I think that's a very somewhat underrated gift right now in a, in a world where this, the footballing schedule is very, very difficult for a lot of the players. And you've seen injuries and things like that occur, but they are still finding a way to, although not really playing as many games as at some other clubs, just coming out every weekend at 110%. So have to shout them out. Oh, of course. And and they battered Cadiz this past weekend. It was only 1-0, but Cadiz's shots, only, they only had two shots, and both of them came from 30-plus and 40-plus yards out. And so it's a defensive side that's really impressive for Sociedad at the moment. And I know we've also talked a lot about David Silva's impact on this team, but... We got to shout out Adnan Yanazai, who, after, you know, such a weird start to his professional career, comes through the United Academy, bursts onto the scene, I think, in David Moyes' first year and scores a, a wonderful, I think, debut goal or his first goal for United's senior team was just wonderful and kind of loses his way for a few years, as can happen with any young player right but what is really impressive is he's found a club that fits him and that's the most important thing and he's been with Sociedad since 2017 and he's come into this season where it's the best he's played for them and at the same time he's still just 25 right and it's it's just this game so like the sport is so crazy because you can be so great so young and it has almost no bearing on what your career will be like in six years i mean we just there's so many examples like we can throw out Boyan, like is a great one from barcelona like players that start so well and then things kind of you know <laughs> ellie's throwing a middle finger at me right now um but no, props to Anand Yanazai. Honestly, like it, he's having a great start to his, to his uh, season and the best season so far of his career. It still has only been 10 games, but he's having a serious impact in this team. And I almost wonder like, the impact of David Silva being in this team, not just on the field, but as like a leader, as a guy who's won a World Cup, who's won two Euro championships, who's won Premier League titles and has been one of the best players on almost all of those champions sides. Right. And he comes into this team that has a lot of young players and 
seems like his almost aura is rubbing off on on the rest of the players on Real Sociedad. So, you know, I want to give props to Adnan Yanazai, and we we shouldn't undervalue the impact of a player like David Silva joining um, a team like Sociedad that was just kind of starting to bloom. You make a great point about two players that I also wanted to touch on, David Silva and Yanozai, of course. Yanozai with a great assist, by the way, for Alexi Zach's goal over the weekend. Um, I think that goes to show the progression that he's made at Real Sociedad in getting consistent playing time. Because I remember one of the things that he missed out on United was that he was very in and out of the team, right? There were times where he would shine and he would do really well and maybe he'd get a game or two and then he'd get benched. And then it just wasn't a consistent overall performance and, and playing time from David Moyes. Secondly, David Silva, while the man is is basically aging like fine wine, you know, very Cristiano Ronaldo-esque, it's important to point out two things. One, I think his impact on the squad and, and having that, you know, veteranship come to the team. And also, when it comes to key passes to assists, he tops the charts right now in La Liga. And he is clearly the number one player in that statistic statistical category, but those both statistical categories. So it's not like he's just a veteran sitting on the bench. He's a veteran that's making an impact and helping the team in a very tangible way too. So it's almost like he was a fresh new signing that was kind of a young blooded talent coming up because he's playing like that right now. So it should not underrate how important that is to this Real Sociedad side. A player that Manchester City are probably missing to some to a huge extent right now. Yes, yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, the one thing that I'm really sad about with David Silva, um, I will say, is I think he's probably going to miss the Villarreal um, uh, game that they have coming up this Sunday. So Real Sociedad do play Villarreal, so that's a battle basically for a, <laughs> a top four spot, quite honestly, um, which I will be watching this Sunday. I think he's going to miss it, but yes, I think Manchester City would love to have David Silva back or a David Silva-esque player back right now. I I was reading today that Christian Eriksen might be given up by Inter for Arsenal, but I think a better fit would be Manchester City. Well, honestly, both would be a great fit, but... Both, yeah, it might be, I think, more desperately needed at Arsenal, right? but, but he would be pretty useful at either right now. A hundred percent. That's exactly what they both sides need, but that's neither here nor there, honestly. But anyway, um, I think that's all the La Liga topics that we were going to cover. And again, some really entertaining stuff coming out of Spain. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. I know we started on a sad note about Diego Maradona, but maybe one of these days we'll do a, a podcast dedicated to him after I, I have to get around to watch the HBO documentary about him because I have not. I know Rian has talked very highly about it, so... We'll be back next week talking a little bit more about the games from England and Spain this upcoming weekend, namely Chelsea Spurs and, of course, Real Sociedad Villarreal. So with that, thank you guys for listening. As always, have a good one and happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, guys.